0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today we are going to join Terrence McKenna and a few of his friends for the third installment of his October 2nd, 1992 workshop. Like many of his talks that were directed by questions from the attendees, a wide variety of topics was covered, and basically this talk reflected the interests of those who were there, and those interests included psychedelics, glossolalia, DMT, language, astrology, science, scientists, morphic residents, ayahuasca, LSD, mind, FDA, and psilocybin. Probably something else in there, but I didn't get track of all of them. But there seems to be something here for almost everybody, so let's join them now.
1: Whom, or all of which, I'm not sure, uh, evolved in the shallow waters near coastlines. When those environments became evolutionarily crowded, the octopi evolved into the benthic depths, into the parts of the ocean where no light ever reaches. But in order to maintain lines of communication over long periods of time, they evolved phosphorescent organs on their bodies and eyelid like membranes covering those phosphorescent organs. So, in the benthic depths of the sea, all that one octopus ever encounters of another is its pure linguistic intent. Nothing else can be seen. So, I think that uh, the DMTLs, I mean, all I can figure is that they are trying to catalyze us to move up the scale in the refining of the bandwidth of our communication skills, yeah. Do
2: you feel that after your experience with, them, with GMTL, that, with DMTL did you come any closer to expressing your communication through those means? Uh, you mean, do I
1: feel more able to do that? Yeah, do you feel any closer, or is it otherwise just maybe an
2: entertainment instead of an enlightenment, if we aren't able to actually reach it?
1: Well, no, I mean, they, they uh, urge one toward a kind of glossolalia, a kind of ecstatic verbal activity that is devoid of attachment to the culturally contrived dictionary. And for a long time, I could hear them do this. I could hear this stuff, this DMT gibberish flowing through my mind. And then eventually I became able to do it. Uh, And it's immensely satisfying. This relates back to what we discussed this morning about how um, there's DMT in the human brain being produced for some reason. You see, we do tend to connect successful linguistic activity with the visual cortex, in other words. If somebody successfully communicates something to you, you say, I see what you mean. Now it's clear to me. You've painted a picture. Why is it that when we want to say that language is succeeding, we reach for visual metaphors? It's because we trust our eyes. We don't trust our ears. The world is defined for us as something seen. And uh, the ambiguity of ordinary communication, which is culturally defined, and for each of us defined by basically where on the surface of the planet you first saw the light of day, you know, the French speak French, the Dutch speak Dutch, why can't the English learn how to speak, or no, that's something else, Uh, uh, but if but what I'm talking about is an Ur language that you don't learn from a culture, but that you learn in the same way that you know how to breathe, you know how to eat, you know how to grasp. It's in the organic structure rather than in the cultural uh, software. Yeah.
2: But is it the communication?
1: Is it with other, can you communicate with others? Other human beings? Yeah. Well, you can if you're both loaded on DMT, but uh, that's such a chaotic environment in which to sort this kind of stuff out. That's what drove me to the Amazon in the first place, was the DMT flash is so maddeningly short. I mean, you're trying to sort all this out and assure yourself you're not dead as a doornail in about two and a half minutes. And I thought, you know, we need to slow it down. And stretch it out. Why does it have to be like a Bugs Bunny cartoon run backwards at five times normal speed? I mean you just cannot get a grasp on it and over the years judicious manipulation of these substances and all kinds of special conditions eventually you see what it is and it's almost as though language is trying to be born out of matter The pure energy thing of 50s science fiction may, in fact, be a fairly accurate take on where we're headed. We are headed toward becoming pure syntactical intentionality, just shedding the monkey, shedding any umbilical cord into matter, matter is becoming a fairly uncomfortable dimension for us to be in, and I dare say matter would probably be highly relieved to have us just move on (laughs) so that the rainforest, chipmunks, glaciers, and schooling salmon could go back to doing what they do best. Nicole. Um, Well, this could be. I mean... uh, All I've ever seen of that other universe is an area smaller than this room. And yet I assume that other universe is probably equal in size to our own. So I'm not exactly Ferdinand Magellan uh, where it's concerned. Yeah, I think our materialism has, has focused us so entirely away from these more rarefied layers that we cannot see them at all that we, in fact, deny their existence. You know, in a way, what science as practiced over the past 500 years has come down to is it has been a relentless despiritualizing of the world until finally, you know, they tell you there is no soul, there are no spirits, there, what you see is what you get. We have risen to the surface. Well, a shaman looking at a person with that kind of a mental map of things just pities them their simplistic stupidity. He says, you know, yeah. my God, you're, you're like a half-wit or something. Because everything interesting and complex, you say, doesn't even exist.
3: I agree, but that doesn't mean that because we as a culture are now at a point where we do need to go back to this forgotten land.
1: That's true, but also eventually you get into a situation of diminishing returns. For instance, you know, it was a great step forward for von Leeuwenhoek to grind his lenses and to see little animals cavorting in a drop of water. But for instance, now, uh, ordinary science is going to Congress and saying, in order to take another step deeper into the understanding of matter, we want uh, $20 billion to create an instrument 17 miles in diameter that will take 30 years to build and that will allow us to ag- at last confront the, the uh, bottom quark or something like that. I heard these guys on NPR, probably some of you heard them, being challenged, particle physicists, being challenged by someone who said, well, you want America to commit, I think it was $50 billion to building the super collider, is that, can you name a single spin-off
0: from particle
1: physics that has trickled down into the lives of ordinary people? And they were absolutely stymied.
3: Well, uh, I kind of go with Peter Russell's theory that, you know, perhaps from our technological culture, we did get something, you know. First of all, none of us would be here if it was not for technology, because today we have, like, close to five billion people on Earth. That might be a curse, but that also might be, you know, do you want to be the one who is not born? I mean... uh...
1: A tricky question.
3: (laughs) 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 So, in, in that fact of, life explosion, there is one thing that happened is that we do not have a conscious of ourselves as one planet, as one whole being. I mean, even with the technology of going to the moon, through the physicality, we have a view of ourselves from the outside. I mean, to me, I look at it like maybe in the evolution of humanity, it's like uh, being seven years old, you know, all of a sudden you say, but hey... I am me, you know, I am somebody, and I can decide, you know, to say no or to say yes, but it is something there, there is an entity. And as a planet, maybe that's what we did when we went to the moon. And the Indians, you know, I go down to sweat lodge every week, and I participate with the Indian community down in San Pedro, so I'm trying to learn a bit the way they think. And a lot of things I, I enjoy very much, you know, but then other things, you know, I don't agree totally. For instance, with the moon thing, you know, they say, well, we've been to the moon many, many times before, and we go to the moon through the dream world. See, like, you went to the elves, but a lot of people go to the stars. I mean, there is a lot of other realities out there, and it's not the future, and it's not the past. It's just life. It's part of that dense, rich...
1: But but do you think that it's simply that there are a lot of realities... For instance, what puzzles me about these encounters with these elf things is the urgency from their side. You know, what I could imagine just breaking into an elf ecology and seeing them busy making shoes and, uh, you know, putting the blush on strawberries or whatever elves do. <laughs> But they seem intently focused on a project that has consequences in this world, and that puzzles me. I don't think history has been a waste of time. I think probably it's served its purpose, and that what we now have to do is take what we've learned. It's the prodigal son, I mentioned that, and now return to the archaic family with... The ability to move to the moon and to etch microcircuitry and to define the protein coats of viruses and these fancy things that we can do. All that is good knowledge, but it has to be linked to a coherency of self that we somehow have gotten so strung out on this scientific descriptive binge that we forgot why we're doing it. And yeah. what this is all for. The basis of my criticism of science is not the science that it does, which it does very well, but the metaphysical pontificating that it claims to be able to do based on nothing more than its assumption that all competitors are naive. I mean, science should not be telling us uh, what we should think about astrology because astrology is not a proper object for scientific judgment. In other words, science is simply one method of understanding the world. But the people who practice science think it's a meta-method, think that it is somehow the arbiter of truth, and that we are supposed to take any proposition and lay it at the feet of science, and it will uh, tell us whether it's kosher or not. And that means that the scientists are completely out of their domain and should be sent back to the workbench and the test tube and stay out of uh, the domain of metaphysics and philosophy, which is not properly their area. Well, if it's all nonsense, then we're in a hell of a fix. Uh, That's where we may be. uh, Wittgenstein had a slightly different notion that I think is more serviceable here. He said. What we want to do is we want to make statements that are true enough. Now, there's a monkey concept. That's what we want. We want to say things which are true enough. That means serviceable in the circumstance in which they are being applied. And that is. Yeah, or whatever. You know, if you're solving tensor equations of the third degree, then in that domain. But the idea, you see, it's so crazy to think that talking monkeys could get anywhere near truth. I mean, if, if, do you think a sea urchin possesses the truth or a macaw? Well, then why you? And, and especially when you realize, you know, we do all this business in English and we're utterly naive about the limitations of language uh you can't even under i mean take someone like uh, derrida for instance whatever the man's truth is it can't even be exported into english without becoming gibberish because when you read him you can't understand him
4: and as you suggest with these these elves that you're talking about a medium of pure language
1: of oh, a purer language pure. Yes. Well, language, you know, if you were to look at this planet and seek the thumbprint of uh, a higher intelligence, God or the goddess or whatever, language is the thing to look at. I mean, this is the thing we do that is an incredible symmetry break with the rest of nature.
4: Do you think a dog can tell the difference between those stairs and that, and that floor or the, or the rug and, the, and that, or even the flowers and that? He sees it as a continuum that simply is a texture. Like, we look at this rug, we don't identify that spot from the rest of it, we just simply say
1: it's a rug. Well, an animal intelligence is, is suspended in the here and now. We have, uh, language seems to be a strategy for binding time. And notice that the entirety of evolutionary advance is a series of time-binding strategies. Uh, Once you possess language, and especially once you possess writing, the past is not so past as it used to be. It hangs around, and we begin to create a database of experience larger than any community of living people could ever have. And the past stays with us. This is both a blessing and a curse.
4: Notice that we have industrial cultures as a result of the accumulation of written language, that there's a simultaneousness between written language and agriculture, etc., and, and uh, industrial culture.
1: Oh, yeah. I, I don't have any problem with that. I, you know, somebody said language was created to lie. Yes, but it does it so elegantly and so well that the half-truths it tells are all that we can communicate. The truth. Cannot be said.
4: It may even be possible to chart the evolution of a single individual from, you know, from a, a, an infant all the way through his maturity as one who takes the journey from the right side of his brain into the left side of his brain, crossing a certain membrane there where he switches his dominance from right to left and then going full circle and then once again becoming quote unquote spiritual by adopting and integrating the right once again.
1: Well, yeah, these are all metaphors and analogies for a process which is essentially incomprehensible. There is no reason to expect reality to be rationally apprehendable. This is the the basic fallacy that we so confidently assume the world is for us that we assume that we should also therefore be able to understand it. When, in fact, what we've done is just carved out a very limited domain of repetitious algorithms that don't have fatal consequences for us. And then the rest of it lies in the realm of the great who knows. But, you know, since there's very little uh, percentage to be made out of that, people... Uh, prefer to keep their faces turned inward toward the campfire, not outward toward the immense darkness revealed by the campfire. And the bigger you build the campfire of metaphor, the more darkness you reveal outside of its domain. So uh, if ever there was an argument for open-endedness, and a, and a defocusing on closure, it would be the linguistic enterprise, I think. Well, we yeah. do.
4: Just, just we it may, you know, language uh, may be the carrier or the virus that, in fact, causes consciousness. There may not be any consciousness without the, uh, this infection of language.
1: Yeah, well, I don't have any trouble with that. I mean, William Burroughs said language is a virus from outer space. Uh, And well, it may be. It does have, uh, you know, it self-replicates itself. It spreads through a population. Ideas mutate. They compete with each other. Ideas become extinct. New ideological forms that are more adaptable squeeze out other forms. I mean, the whole evolution of organic life may be simply a lower dimensional rehearsal for a kind of syntactical evolution that is going to go on in a domain that we can barely conceive of. Yeah, over.
0: For myself, I'm not so concerned with what the truth is, but what in in fact works in one's life and how one uh, uses the word or uses the ideas to manifest in the reality that we're booming through. Um, in light of that, I'm just wondering about the, the mushroom, morphogenetic fields, the uh, plant community in terms of allies uh, that one can become connected with as, a, as, a, as a, uh, a collective community that we're all participating in. Can you elaborate on that?
1: Well, I've talked with Rupert a lot about this and um, sort of... Um, different things can be said. I mean, one way of thinking about what the psychedelic experience is is that um, psychoactive compounds amplify the morphogenetic field to the point where it becomes a potential object for inspection by the conscious mind. In the same way that we know right now that this room is filled with radio, VHF, UHF signals, but we also know that we would have to have a radio or a television set in order to tap into them. Uh, The morphogenetic field is ordinarily damped by experience, but becomes overwhelmingly present when we jack our neurophysiological receptors up to the point where these previously invisible influences become visible the other thing in terms of the morphogenetic field theory and how it relates to psychedelics is to realize that when you take a plant, the plant takes you. And so, for instance, uh, one of the reasons I prefer shamanic hallucinogens to synthetics is that they are so much richer as databases Because they have inside them all the people who've ever taken them I mean when you take psilocybin You leave something behind in there that every other every subsequent User of psilocybin will encounter So you know the way Tibetans leave little cairns of rock when they cross high mountain passes Well, this is what we're doing in the psychedelic experience and really the character of psilocybin is the cumulative superimposition of the character of the thousands and thousands of people over the millennia that have taken it plus something else, its own unique nature when you when you take a a a, a, a uh, drug which induces an altered state like ketamine, for instance, ketamine is a a drug that has not been around very long, hasn't been taken by millions of people, and is oddly empty. It's, the building is there, the architecture is there, but where are the hurrying secretaries, the water coolers, uh, the executives, the buzzing elevator, nothing. You know? It's empty real estate, it's for rent. And uh, if you want to move in, well, then you can live there. But it's, uh, it's the difference between a modern office building and a 14th century Italian villa, when you contrast uh, a modern synthetic with a, uh, a well-used shamanic organic. Yeah. A lot of times when I first take like five grams or something, I get this. This is kind of a simple thing, but it's a yawn. I'm wondering if, does anybody else get that yawn? Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the the yawn is a physiological response to psilocybin that is, it's part of it. And so is the runny nose in the first hour. Mm. This is, you know, every drug has a spectrum of effects. And some are dependable and some are not. I mean, for instance, LSD, almost, you could almost say 100% of the people who take LSD, it dilates your eyes. That is an effect of LSD that it would be impossible to eliminate But I wouldn't say 100% of the people who take LSD encounter The good Lord or something like that. That's a more selective effect.
5: Okay, the uh, second part is After I take five grams and after I get the buzzing sounds in my ears and then I this last time I took it um, was in a darkened room laid on the bed got naked and just laid there and um for the first time, what happened, usually I close my eyes and I'm able to get visions, kind of a passing vision, almost like a film going through my head. I'm wondering also, does anybody get it where it's coming from the right to the left, or from the left to the right, sort of a film
1: coming across? Yes, front. Ah. <laughs>
3: <laughs>
1: Parentology. Well, I, I think that, that the number of ways these things can present themselves is practically infinite. I mean I've seen I've had really weird experiences with information. For instance, uh, you know these flashers on buildings where the news goes by, I've had hallucinations where it became a textual hallucination. In other words, what I was seeing was an illuminated page of print and then as I looked at it, every 50th letter would invert and then suddenly every 20th, and then every 10th, and then every 5th, and I literally watch a page of text go from being readable to being gibberish, and then watch the meaning come through again in a loop. I mean, I think anything you can conceive of, it can do, and many things you can't conceive of. What's the beauty it, of individual perception.
2: I mean, we're all individuals, we all have... The, the gift of bringing our own ideas,
1: but still you have to be able to make general statements about it, or you would have to say that it's all and everything. Well, one but of the it, but one if it's of the exactly the same, it would be boring. But, well, well although how boring. would you know, since you would never have any trip but your own? Right. One of the things that happens on psilocybin and on ayahuasca that really puzzles me, that I just go back to again and again, is you can be having these volleys of hallucination and then you can say to it uh, art deco and click and suddenly there will be thousands of cigarette lighters, limousines, candy dishes, stuff rolling in black space in front of you. Thousands of these things perfectly exemplifying this very narrowly defined aesthetic domain Italian Baroque. (laughs) Click. Altarpieces, saints with their eyes rolled back, dripping gold, the whole thing. And so they say, boy, that is really strange. We click through aesthetic epochs like points on a dial, but then you can say to it, surprise me. In Baroque, not Ampere, not dynastic Egypt, not North American Indian, Maya or Fujiwara Japanese, but something never seen on this planet, but equally coherent as those other styles. And I always think, you know, my God, if I could just grab hold of this, I would be Yves Saint Laurent or Clint <laughs> or somebody like that. Mm-hmm. and and uh, And then, you know, the most puzzling one of all is you can say to the mushroom, okay, enough of surprises, art deco, Italian baroque, show me what you are for yourself. And then it's almost like, you know, there's a roll of drums and black curtains begin to rise and, and there's a cold air that sweeps through the room. And you realize, you know, okay, you know, after about 45 seconds of that, you have to call a halt because you said you realize you know this thing was had clothed itself in so many levels of visual reassurance for you as a human being that the request that it reveal its true nature. Sets off a cascade headed in a truly appalling direction, and usually you say, "Okay, that's enough of your true nature. Let's go back to dancing chipmunks and uh, little candies rolling in the dark." Yeah. Uh,
2: Do you foresee a thought or discrete thought in
4: particular being uh, kind of locatable on the frequency spectrum of matter and energy, such that it can drive the input to virtual reality, so that you could
1: Communicate these kind of experiences, uh, with you mean a machine that could be driven by the imagination it's pretty well it raises a bunch of questions i mean the first question is where is thought generated the straight people believe that the brain makes thought makes it uh, i think that the evidence is overwhelmingly against that, that that's as naive an approach to thought as, I remember when I was little, I once tore apart a radio looking for little people inside of it. And, uh, you know, there are no little people inside the radio. The radio transduces vibrations that surround the planet and turns it into uh, a recognizable experience i i don't believe thought can be located in the brain i think the brain is an amplifier and an antenna for something that is everywhere that the phrase my thoughts is a complete misnomer you don't own thoughts you don't generate them all you do is tune Into an ocean of thought in which we're embedded. This is the morphogenetic field about which so much shouting and arm-waving is going on the to my mind the proof of this position is The fact that the psychedelic experience unleashes visions in your head Which you could not possibly have conceived of or imagined It doesn't come from you if we say that the content of the psychedelic experience comes from the self then we have defined the self in such a way that it's unrecognizable to us and if your self is unrecognizable to you then it isn't yourself you see so uh these things are proving that we participate in the world of mind but that we don't generate it why
2: are we all something the same thing if it's a universal thought
1: well, it's that's like saying when we swim in the ocean, why don't we all see the same fish? Because the ocean is enormous. Because uh, we all enter it from different angles of attack. But if we were
4: swimming together, would we experience the same fish? Yes,
1: we would. And on psilocybin, one of the most stunning experiences you can have, if you wanted to make a believer out of you, is to sit with somebody and describe what you're seeing And agree that after three minutes you'll shut up and they'll Start up and you discover that you just hand the baton on they see what you see you see What they see this is confounding you see if we could do legal research with this stuff We could overturn the paradigms of normal science in a number of areas within 18 months I'm sure of it. I've seen it happen. I mean I've seen states of group mindedness that were so specific that there was no possibility that what was not happening was no shit, one-on-one, real-time telepathy. Are there
6: countries in the world, maybe,
1: Amsterdam, where, oh. Well, there are countries in the world where psychedelic research is, is tolerated, is the only way to put it, but it's in the hands of uh, scientists. And people of uh, the imagination impaired
2: are, are largely in
1: charge of these research programs. They're asking the wrong questions. You know, I mean, if you get a well, that's enough. They're asking the wrong questions. Relevant
4: to that, I, I wanted to share this with everybody else. I don't know if anybody's familiar with Maps, the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. They just released their new newsletter, and what this newsletter said, basically is that. At uh, a recent convened meeting with the FDA uh, and a couple days after that with the National Institute for Drug Abuse, they've worked out an arrangement now where MDMA, at least, and they say in another article here, that possibly LSD testing will be uh, undertaken very seriously in the the near future. And this is uh, going through MAPS and in conjoint uh, working with the FDA, uh, to get certain types of permits uh, for the, the um, more intensive research that should be done in this
1: field. There is, I think, uh, uh, the, the, the resistance to psychedelic research is beginning to weaken because an entire generation of people, people who were, you know, three and four years old in the 1960s are now entering the medical research establishment as postdocs and so forth and there is no good reason to be given for uh, not having a research program on psilocybin for example i mean it was never a social problem it it is a valid object for scientific research it's amazing to me the gutlessness of the scientific establishment on this matter i mean why You know, we hear about the omnipotence of the AMA and so forth and so on. Why has the scientific establishment lain down like a dog and let politicians set the research agenda for human research on psychedelics? The last time this happened was in the 14th century when the Pope and his cronies tried to make it impossible for people to dissect corpses because they didn't want people to uh, understand human anatomy. Well, in that situation, instead of swallowing it and putting up with it, medical students would steal bodies off the gallows and trail along behind armies to look at the freshly killed in order to create a compendious understanding of human anatomy. And and they did. In the twentieth century, science, which would have you believe that it's absolutely unbiased and it goes wherever curiosity seeks without prejudice or deference to anybody's social values or anything, is in fact a, a, a sycophantic slave to the agenda of these frightened politicians. So it's a real disgrace because you know, I lived through the first psychedelic revolution and uh, the news about LSD swept over the psychoanalytic community with the kind of force that the splitting of the atom swept over the physics community and people involved in treating mental illness and studying brain function and mapping the brain said this is amazing a tool has been put into our hands that will throw open doorways in the practice of psychology we couldn't dream of and instead it was absolutely slammed shut.
6: Imagine
1: if Galileo had smashed his telescope after there was a little bit of whining from the Vatican. Had that happened, you know, we would still be living in a universe de- uh, defined by the Aristotelian stellar shells. Uh, a little courage on the part of these almighty scientists would go a long way toward overwhelming the, the fearful strictures placed on by politicians who are trying to maintain a social equilibrium that is fairly odious anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I
2: kind of supportive one thing you said and also a question which I hope will be organized enough for you to answer. Um, Your remarks about the telepathy, um, after some extremely intense boundary dissolution experiences with my wife, we have gotten to the point where using straight Michael Harner shamanic journeying techniques, we routinely have each other's visions. Um, I think I'm wondering if, if it isn't as much a matter of a learned response as anything else.
1: No, I think it is a learned response. I think, uh, uh, you know, it requires psychedelics usually to plow the channel. But once you open the groove, then there are ways to reinforce it. And uh, one of the underrated uh, tools in this game is the power of acoustical driving and the power of sound to synergize... uh, subtle subtle chemical reactions i mean music is so compelling to us because it is essentially brain massage of some sort and the pleasure we derive from music is uh, at some level a, a chemical pleasure and I, I think, you know, trying to get to these places with yoga and drumming and fasting and all that is a pretty thankless task unless you clear the way with psychedelics and then you can really get somewhere. If you use psychedelics in combination with any of these traditional techniques for working in these areas, suddenly these traditional techniques previously found to be maddeningly ineffective, become very, very powerful tools. So mantra with psychedelics works like magic. Uh, Yoga, breath control, drumming, visualization, simple prayer, it all works amazingly well in the presence of psychedelics and in the absence of psychedelics uh, entirely. It's a pretty frustrating get-go. And unfortunately, these non-psychedelic spiritual techniques are very quickly co-opted by the beady-eyed priests among us who then peddle it back to us with a menu of moral uh, uh, do's and don'ts stapled to the front of it. And that's entirely discouraging.
2: Yeah, my other question is, kind of ties together some things you've mentioned during the course of the day. You mentioned way back when about no one else having the experiences that you have. Um, And so my question is to the whole issue of community and lifestyle. Um, The issue that I'm wrestling with right now, I think part of what I'm experiencing is my own drive for wholeness or insight or whatever part of it is perhaps the transcendental object on the event horizon but what i'm wrestling with is how to follow my muse how to live the life that's drawing me and at the same time able to function and pay my child support and not live in the woods And if you could maybe give some guidance to me and some others of us that are wrestling with that issue.
1: Well, this is the tension between the transcendental Mm. and the mundane. What do you do about it? I don't know. I I experience it as a real tension as well because I, you see all these other um, spiritual techniques, yoga, breath control, diet, you name it. The way you pursue those is with the pedal, to the metal in other words full-on full-court press the way you relate to psychedelics is entirely the opposite with your foot on the brakes all the time they the people who are using these other these non-psychedelic techniques are endlessly frustrated by the fact that they're not able to get where they want to go i think the people who use psychedelics spend a huge amount of time trying to keep from overshooting the goal and losing themselves in the incomprehensible who-knows-what. I think that if you have a genuine desire to leave us all behind and to go up on cold mountain and to become a Taoist immortal and to clothe yourself in a hair shirt and eat roots and contemplate the One forever, hey, there's nothing stopping you. It's just that that's an easy goal to enunciate when it's practically impossible. But it's in the presence of psychedelics, it is quite realizable. And then you have to think, but wait a minute, what about child support? Mm -hmm. What about, you know, my love of double cappuccino? (laughs) What about... And then you say, well, I could leave this world. I could become an ascended master but is that what i really wanted all along and and i think this is a tension i mean i feel it in myself uh, basically i do what i do and it's a chicken shit response to what i could be doing because what i could be doing is becoming utterly incomprehensible to everybody else on the planet and living in a tree somewhere and happily staring into space every waking minute. And but I I I am not ready to kiss off my library, my children, my friends, my vices. And so people in our position have to balance these things. And I think the real spiritual frontier lies in the community. That we must Uh, You know, it's sort of the bodhisattvic ideal. We must somehow carry everyone with us It's not about bailing out of history. It's about sticking with it until we can end it for everybody But I'm not saying that's the only point of view if you want to go If you want to become an Arhat, I don't think there's anything stopping you you see once you get to the place where you find out by some of peculiar circumstances about these things, psilocybin, DMT, and so forth, you have crossed a real frontier. This is not simply another spiritual technique for, you know, picayunish advancement, uh, one more small step down the path. This is, in Mm -hmm. fact, this works. And maybe you never thought you would find something that works. Well, so the entire—you see—the attitude—it's—it's it's a naive attitude to quest. It's the attitude of the ingenue, the fool, the castanet figure. Seeks. Once you reach the psychedelic plateau, the tool has been placed in your hands. Now now you have to figure out whether you were really serious about all this transcendental yearning that you indulged in when it seemed so far out of reach because now you know it's just a dose away and we all come to that very differently it's a different dilemma from the rest of the spiritual community they just need more and more power we need more and more insight and wisdom in order to know what to do with the fact that we can now achieve whatever we conceive of. So now is a moment to take a deep breath and decide where we really want to go with this stuff.
5: Can I, can oh, I, can sure. I just wanted to go back to you talking about the AMA. Um, I know I've heard Dr. Andrew Wilde talk how they used LSD in treating autism. I knew a guy that was autistic and regained his hearing when his brother gave him LSD when he was 12 years old. Um, I believe the AMA does not want us to be healthy. They do not want us to have the tools. Um, there's a book called Toxic Psychology about how the psychopharmacology is actually making people brain dead. And I think, I mean, if you go back in time, the original healers who used plants and herbs were burned at the stake of being witches because of the medical schools they had back then and they were all men, they wouldn't let women in it even though they had been the original humans. And right now the FDA is doing this. They're trying to outlaw plants and herbs for healing, for anything. And this is vitamins, uh, food supplements, everything. And like I myself, I don't take pharmaceutical drugs because they make me sick. And the only thing I have to use for my PMS is hemp and it's the only thing that works. And we all have to be somewhat political and make statements to people and enlighten them and educate them as to what's really going on because there's a whole world that could be opened up if we started using our plants and our herbs for healing again.
1: Yeah, I agree.
5: There's a, there's a lot of holistic um, centers opening up all over. I was just in one in Leavenworth, Washington, and it was really rewarding and wonderful to see a physician actually reaching out and searching other healers a shaman and also uh, herbalists everybody in her private practice so it is coming in and it's very slow but it's, it's coming around
1: and faster
5: and faster i think that's why the fda right now is trying to do away with it because it is growing if you knew the legislation that is going on right now they are raiding health food stores with guns and taking things out of there that like aloe vera products and they're saying they've never been tested. We haven't approved it, and they're taking. I guarantee you, this is happening right now, and that's where you have to be aware and you have to educate people about it.
1: But you see, at the same point, at the same time, they're granting the first INDs for psychedelic research in 30 years. So I, pre- instead of taking a paranoid view, I, you know, that they are against it and us, I, I just think that. If you dissect these human institutions, what you find always are individuals, and uh, usually these institutions are fraught with internal Mm conflicts about what they're doing. There's a lot of fear, there's a lot of mistrust, and very few people go around rubbing their hands together and cackling over the fact that they are committing acts of pure evil. (laughs) Most people have some kind of internal story that tells them that they are doing the very best they can. It's just that there are also a lot of jug-headed misconceptions about what the best we can actually means. This is why um, dialogue is so important why free speech is such a powerful notion? Let all ideas compete on a level playing field, and uh, the 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 correct points of view I think will will emerge eventually well
5: that's why we need people like you out there <laughs>
1: uh
4: backing up a little bit to uh. The journeys to elfdom and other places most semantic journeys seem to be almost even when they began begun as a a, a group thing end up being a solitary journey of of your own whether you're the octopus with the colors displaying yourself and you're out there it very rarely do you hear of people journeying with another mind being not 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 the body being but a, a mind being so in these journeys whether you're in an elf realm or another realm is, is there a reading between these other entities and you in your journey to their world or their space? I mean, can, is there a communication at all? And also, can you go with somebody from this realm out there, but on a mind plane, or as, as you described, the octopus, type thing where you're communicating not with words or dictionaries?
1: well it's hard to say, you know Plotinus, who was a neoplatonic philosopher, he described the mystical experience of as the flight of the alone to the alone, and there certainly is an element in, in the psychedelic thing of its being so large, a dimension that when you go into it, you not only see things that you have never seen before you. See and not only do you see things that no one else has seen before, but you see things which no one else will ever see again. So I I tend to, and this is just my personal preference, and I'm a double Scorpio and a number of different things that push me in this direction, but I really like to do the deep work alone and then try to bring it back. And this is the proper domain for sharing and community we know that the psychedelic you know that behind 5 grams of psilocybin lies a psychedelic world but how can we create a psychedelic world here and now on zip and the answer is by becoming ever more psychedelic ourselves and so it's a tremendous empowerment for eccentricity And basically my whole career is based on eccentricity. One of the most fearful questions to come my way is when I'm riding on airplanes to some situation like this and someone sits down beside me and says, so what do you do? (laughs) And I usually, I I try to escape. I say, and this is always a horribly weak thing, I say, I write books and then they say oh well what do you write books about and then we move into the realm of pure lie I usually say travel (laughs) Uh, so you know I think if you have uh, I mean to return to your question if you have an extraordinary heart connection with someone you can voyage together a certain distance but this is a unique kind of thing and uh, probably many a relationship has experienced unnecessary strain because somebody thought they had that kind of connection and then when they got out into the incoming psychic surf they discovered one person forgot their tanks uh, back on the beach yeah
2: you know, I, I need to clarify you said earlier and i heard you say before that behind five milligrams of one thing or 500 uh, of another there is a little green elf or something else. Is that a
4: consistent
2: picture for you? Not that the experience would not be new in terms of the communication, but is, is that consistent? Do you, do you yourself find that same image or that same level of, of uh, mushroom at that point? But then secondly, do in, in terms of the people that, that you communicate with who do measured quantities and who do it similarly, say, uh, Rupert Sheldon, is, do does have you have other people, have other individuals communicated that they see those same
1: type of creatures, for lack of a better word? Well, I mean, the answer is, you know, if you send ten people to Paris, and then you interview them about their experience of Paris, you know, one of them stayed with the wife of the prime minister, somebody else stayed in a bordello on the wrong side of town, their notions of Paris are rather different. However, if you interview them closely enough, you can tell that this must have been the same place in some sense. I mean, for me, the DMT experience is remarkably consistent. It always is this dome underground filled with these self-transforming elf machine creatures And then when I talk to other people and interview them about it, what I've come away with is the notion that an archetype is like a series of concentric circles. And to the degree that you reach the center of the circle, the accounts become more and more consistent. For instance, and in thinking along those lines, what I've come to see about, for instance, DMT, is that... It has an archetype, and the archetype is, and God knows why, the circus. DMT (laughs) is the archetype of the circus. So you give it to someone who is not psychedelically sophisticated, and you give them a low dose. Then they come back. Then you say, what was it like? This is a direct quote from a woman a couple of years ago. She said, it was the saddest carnival I've ever been to. She said, all the rides were closed. Nobody was there. There were just gum wrappers blowing between boarded up tents. I said, interesting. So then give it to someone else. And they said, it was full of clowns. And I said, you mean elves? He said, no, just clowns. And as the dose rises, the familiarity of the image is stripped away. And it migrates more and more toward this thing behind the mask. Well, now, if you think of the circus, it is an interesting archetype. First of all, three rings in constant activity. Uh, And it's a wonderful thing for children. Children love the circus because there's light and color and music and animals and, you know, clowns. But then there's also... A side to it which children don't see. I mean, you lift your eyes from the center ring, and there is Eros in the form of the beautiful blonde woman in the tiny spangled costume who works without nets hanging by her teeth far above the center ring. And t- twisted into this erotic image is death, because she works without nets. The whole point of her performance is the fact that she could uh, fall and be killed. Well, then there's yet another aspect to this circus archetype, which is away from the lady in the spangled costume and the clowns climbing out of their little cars and the powdered elephants of many colors, are the sideshows that snake off into the darkness the two headed lady, the goat boy and uh, the thing in the bottle they're all there too to be looked at so it's this incredibly rich amalgam of light color humor childhood memories cotton candy joy eros death the thing in the bottle the wild animals so forth and so on and as you make your way toward it, it it different layers fall away
6: similar but different consistencies with LSD and with uh, psilocybin that you could make it clear as the consistency that you find with the DNC
1: oh yeah I think that see one of the great confusions about psychedelics is that they're all the same like in some textbooks if you look up psilocybin it will say a hallucinogen derived from fungi which causes LSD type hallucinations This is nonsense. This just simply means that LSD arrived first on the workbench of Western civilization, so everything is referent back to it. If you're going to take these things, you need to take enough that you can tell the difference. And at low doses, all psychedelics are the same. It's just the experience of agitation and psychic inner turmoil, sort of like speed, you know. But as the doses increase, you begin to hit the bifurcation points, And uh, these things have distinct personalities. For instance, uh, DMT, the elf playroom reception area. That seems to define it. The amazing thing about psilocybin and its distinguishing characteristic is uh, it speaks. It speaks in English to you it conversationally approaches you and you uh, talk to it in your mind. I mean, this is an amazing thing. If you've never experienced it, there's something out there for you. Try well, it. That's,
6: that's what, I, what was behind asking you that question because I don't have any DMT experience. I've never taken... I've taken uh, psilocybin just in the form of, of the mushrooms themselves mm-hmm. in a botanical garden. And I don't have much other experience. And what happens... Was quite transformational in the long term because it put me in touch with the plant world, but not in. A, I didn't close my eyes. I had no other realm. It was the realm that was there in the garden. A communication. Well, you said it last night. With the mind of that botanical area, the, the mind of that plant world that was there. It talked to me. I wouldn't. I guess like I, it got translated into English, but it was kind of saying everybody should have very close to them. A realm like this to be in, and people would be okay. Do everything you can to support
1: that. (laughs) That's the message. And and for instance, you know, the mushroom has a personality. And like all personalities, it excludes some things and includes others. The, The mushroom personality is a radically eccentric personality. The mushroom talks about transforming the planet. It says, you know, I I come from a distant part of the galaxy. I have 500 million years of galactic history in my databanks. I have seen 50,000 worlds come into existence and pass out of existence. I've seen ships the size of Australia depart for Andromeda. I've seen this, I've seen that. And it's willing to show you the newsreels of it. That kind of a, and it says your world is ending. Put your furry paw into my hand, and together we will march out to the stars. It's this... Dun, 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 dun. Well, so then you, you take a, a compound or, a, or a, a, a shamanic hallucinogen like ayahuasca. Chemically, this is very, very similar to DMT. Experientially, it could hardly be more different. Ayahuasca does not show you images of enormous machines in orbit around alien planets and that sort of thing Ayahuasca first of all it doesn't speak it shows It you become like the eye of a camera Flying through a world and what it shows you it's much more feminine. It shows you Water flowing over the land it shows you plant life growing and dying it shows you the movement of glaciers over the surface of the land. It shows you people burying their dead. It shows you archaic civilizations. It shows you women nursing their children. It shows you meat. It shows you the stuff of this world on every level. And, and it moves you to tears. I mean, it's emotive. It's not about our cosmic destiny out there in the starry blackness. It's about coming to terms with the earth and our past and each other. And you say, you know, these things, these are personalities, these are visions. And the idea is to fuse all of this into a single unitary perception that does honour to all and uh, uh, limit none.
3: You're
2: listening to The Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: I bet that when you heard Terence talking about how we say, I see when we understand something, and then he went on to say, and I quote, We trust our eyes. We don't trust our ears. Well, I think that when you heard that, if you're like me, you were probably thinking the same thing I was thinking, and that is, I wonder what Terence would say about the deep fakes that are now possible with voice and video. And if you've seen some of them, you know exactly what I mean. But unless you're a little geeky, like me... You may have missed the recent deep fake that was a video of President Nixon sitting at his desk and reading from a paper he was holding. And you heard and saw the image of Nixon, looking and sounding like Nixon, but reading a letter saying that the Apollo 11 astronauts were left stranded on the moon. The letter was real, it was written before their launch, just in case they failed, and that letter's been available in the archives for decades. But if you didn't know that the astronauts survived, you could easily be fooled. No longer can we trust our eyes, I'm afraid. Another thing that's changed since this talk was given, and changed in a good way, I should add, and that is the fact that a significant amount of psychedelic research is now underway. While Terence was complaining about what he called the gutlessness of scientists who are afraid to risk their careers to study psychedelics, Even back in 1992, there were several researchers who did have the courage to keep psychedelic research inching forward, and two of those people are Rick Strassman and Charlie Grobe. At the time this talk was given, Rick had already begun the first FDA-approved study of DMT, and inspired by Rick's success with the FDA, Charlie Grobe conducted government-approved human research projects that involved MDMA, ayahuasca, and psilocybin. Now today, there are dozens of psychedelic research programs in the U.S., so in contradiction to what Terence said, there were, in fact, several scientists and medical doctors who actually did have the courage to risk their careers and livelihoods to pursue psychedelic research with human subjects. It seems to me that we owe these early researchers a huge debt of gratitude for keeping the flame alive. And if you want to learn more about Rick, Charlie, and other early scientific inquiries into psychedelics, you'll find interviews with many of them here in the Psychedelic Salon. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.